Hi, I'm Andrew Ford from the University of Canberra on Ngunnawal Country. Welcome to Making a Difference, a Junction Journalism podcast. In this episode, we're bringing you stories about people and places that are trying to make the world a better place. In some cases, that's a huge struggle, especially if we're trying to fix some of society's biggest problems. But you'll also hear about the simple joys of life and how we all eventually leave our mark on the world. First up in the program, it's often the case that people are motivated to make change because of a traumatic event in their own life. That happened to Cooper Chapman. He's a pro surfer, seemingly living the life, But as our reporter James Herring found out, personal circumstances took Cooper's career on a different path. And a warning, this story contains references to mental health and suicide. Here's James. Scrolling through photos of Cooper Chapman on Instagram, the one thing that strikes you about him is the classic surfy vibe. Good looking, suntanned, a big smile, shiny white teeth and tussled hair. His surfing resume also looks the part. Cooper showed the promise of a pro surfer when he was sponsored by a major surfing brand at the age of just 11. It was all going so well as he worked his way onto the World Surf League qualifying series. But two years ago, the trappings of a pro surf lifestyle suddenly became irrelevant. My little sister came home from school in year 12, her last year of high school, and she was like, oh, I lost a friend to suicide. Like, she's pretty strong. So I was like, all right, kids in year 12 are, like, taking their life. We live in the most beautiful part of the world, like, Northern Beaches. And it kind of, like, annoyed me. And then, like, two weeks later, she said another friend and I had lost their life. Cooper struggled to comprehend how two teenagers who seemed to be living the life on Sydney's Northern Beaches could take their own life. Truth was, it was closer to home than Cooper had ever really thought about. I lost an uncle when I was really young to suicide and then I'd watch my dad suffer mental illness so I'd kind of always had that fear of falling down that sort of hereditary path of mental illness. He was spurred into action, partially out of frustration but mostly out of concern for young people. You kind of always say that like, oh, what can I do? And I just kind of made a decision there and then like I'm going to actually try and do something. I want to make it like cool almost to make mental health like something that we work on daily, not something that you work on when you need to. It's like you need to work on it daily. Cooper created an enterprise called the Good Human Factory. The idea was prompted by his father's advice that he should speak to kids about the positive things they can do. It started from humble beginnings. Chapman went back to his old school at Narrabeen Sports High to talk to students. He wanted to share his own stories about the highs and lows of being a pro surfer and how he dealt with those moments. It all started just as like, my I'd run a few surf camps for young kids, just like teaching them surfing stuff. And one of the things I did over the two day weekend, I did, a, and I took them through like a mindfulness exercise, something that I like do when I surf that I've worked on with my psychologist. So I used to like mindfulness and meditation is a big part of my routine. And the one thing that all the parents said the kids really liked was the mindfulness. The school visits and surf camps were well received. And you could see why it was working. The young surfy, talking the language of teenagers, turning a serious issue into something cool to talk about. Cooper says he tells school kids to be kind to your mind. But that also means being kind to others. He says it's about being a good human. The more people that can be kind out there, the more people that can like show gratitude and have these little skills, the better off we're going to be and the more we're going to bring down that suicide rate, which is the real overarching goal of good human factories to lower the self-harm and lower the suicide rate in Australia. 
Cooper says he's done a lot of research about mental health and suicide, but he stresses he is not a psychologist or a counsellor. He's also used his standing in the surfing community to enlist other athletes to spread the message more broadly. They are now ambassadors for the Good Human Factory. The enterprise has made a mark. Cooper continues to run workshops at schools and his work has been recognised by the Australian Institute of Sport. The AIS has teamed up with Lifeline and some high-profile athletes who have now become mental health advocates. Cooper is one of them. He even started a podcast in which he's interviewed surfers, footballers, Olympians, musicians, and even an extreme sport daredevil. One of the big names he's spoken to is seven-time world surfing champion Lane Beachley, an athlete who worked hard and appeared to have it all, but also had her own struggles. When I was competing, I, I've gone through states of depression and I became very familiar with that dark cloud, that uh, black dog, and I knew the, the emotions and I, I, I was familiar with everything that came with it. And we all know how to break ourselves out of negativity, but everything that I usually resort to wasn't working. Surfing wasn't working, laughter wasn't working. I was numbing and I was getting deeper and deeper and deeper into this dark, numbed state. And it wasn't until my husband asked me, are you okay? that it shocked me to my core, it kind of hit a dagger through my heart and I instantly had to look at myself in the mirror and go, actually, no, I'm not okay. And so now I have to have the conversation. Well, first I have to own the fact I'm not okay, then I have to have the conversation with somebody who's earned the right to share in my struggles, my husband being one of them. At the end of each podcast episode, Cooper asks his guest, what do you think it means to be a good human? So it's only fair that we ask the man himself what that looks like. To me, a good human is somebody who lives by their values, takes responsibility for what happens in their life, and is kind to people. I think it's such an overlooked trait, being kind to people. That's Cooper Chapman. The name of his podcast is Good Humans. James Herring was the reporter. And if that story raised any issues for you, make sure you contact Lifeline on 13 11 14 or Beyond Blue at 1300 22 46 36. If we're trying to make the world a better place, sometimes we need to acknowledge our faults and failings. And if 2021 has taught us anything, one of those faults is the way women are treated in many walks of life, including sport. Female athletes are starting to develop a profile in Australia from what was a very low point. Yet in the past couple of months, allegations of abuse have been made in the sport of gymnastics. Swimming is also investigating accusations of misogyny. Someone who's lived that struggle for female recognition is Carrie Graff. She's a former national coach of the Australian basketball team and seven-time championship winner. She says the inequity in the way females are treated is because sport is categorised as men's and women's, when it's really just sport, no labels required. Carrie Graff is speaking with our reporter, Sonia Emanuel. Does this surprise you, though, because women's sport has made some progress over the past decade? It, do it does in some ways, but I think it still speaks to how long it takes to shift 
cultural elements of, of a sport or an organisation. You know, we've seen the rise in, I guess, the participation of women in sports. So, you know, more professional sporting competitions for women, AFLW, Super, Super W, Rugby Codes, Cricket, etc. You know, of the team sports that have that have gained profile and sort of added to the profile of women's sport over the last five to ten years. But to be honest, I think it's because we have a lack of women in some of the key decision-making areas in sport too. If there was um, gender-diverse boards and, and more female CEOs and more female coaches, I just don't think we'd be seeing these you know, horrendous things still happening um, within our sports system. How do you think we can actually get more women on boards and in those executive roles, especially considering those factors like family, um, time, etc., um, seeing as a lack of women in leadership roles is an ongoing issue in sport? We're seeing some women on boards, but are those, is the culture around the board table, is the culture around the management groups and executive committees, are the, is the culture in that room really an inclusive one that engages all the talent at the table, or is it still stuck in an operating style that was, you know, acceptable and okay 20 years ago. We've talked about board members, um, chief executives, coaches. I think there's there's a lot of work to be done, and and in fact we haven't seen progress over the last 20 years. We've seen you know almost a flat line and a bottoming out. I think the numbers, the numbers of women coaching in high performance sport, when now we've got more women's high high performance sport coaching positions, I think has declined, and that's an abomination really. Sport has been described as the boys club but can men be a part of the solution in fixing the gender inequality in sport do you think? We're now saying you know we're now seeing that women are playing sports that were traditionally male sports but I think that's where we need to change. I think sport is sport. Sport doesn't have a gender. I think if you use the sport that I've got expertise in basketball you know Men have coached women's national teams before, but if a woman was to apply to coach the men's national team, they'd say, oh, it's a, you know, it's a different game, it's the men's. It's like, well, the men have coached the women's national team and they haven't played women's basketball. So I think we're still caught in this, I think there's still a perception that the men's sports are superior, superior to watch, um, they're superior athletes, but what they offer as a sporting contest or, um, or a sports product is the same you know there's drama there's momentum there's highs there's lows there's stories within the contest um, there's competition all the things that you would watch in any sporting contest but to suggest one is better than the other and I think perhaps you know tennis is a good example of that you know the the fan fans come and watch the women's final just as they would the men's and they're seen as the same game but slightly different we're lamenting the treatment of women in some sports but isn't sport just a reflection of broader society yeah, absolutely. I think there's, you know, I think sport, like many things, are a microcosm of the broader broader society. In fact, I'd say sport's lagging behind. I, I think, um, you know, I think in business there's perhaps been a shift. Um, I think in the university sector there's been a, a shift in terms of equity in senior management roles. Um, but I think sport is lagging way behind. Um, and I, you know, hazard to say, you know, lagging behind broader broader society. Given all we've spoken about today and the brick walls women are running into, how do you feel about the future of women in sport? I think there's been some really positive growth in for, for women in sport. You know, obviously, conversations around women and gender equity are, are across broad, you know, the broader society at the moment, and I think that's 
highlights the inequities in sport still. You know, a gender pay gap in sport is still huge. Um, but I think there's certainly a spotlight on women in, women in sport at the moment, particularly on athletes. But I think we need to broaden that. That's one part which is fantastic. But, you know, the voices of women need to be to be heard. But I think, you know, men still hold the power in these sporting organisations, and we need the great ones to to step up and help lead and shift the change. And I think that's, you know, change takes takes time. Um, unfortunately, I don't think it's going to happen overnight. But I think, I think the critical piece is, it's one thing to put a group together to talk about it. It's you know, it's the courageous that can then take the take the steps to action legitimate change and to, to force change. That was Carrie Graff, Director of Sport at the University of Canberra, speaking with Sonia Emanuel. This is Making a Difference, a Junction Journalism podcast. Sometimes our lasting legacy to make the world a better place, even in a small way, can be found at our final resting place. Cemeteries tell stories about lives lost, but also about how those lives have touched others. Our reporter, Lucy Monaghan, found many of those stories when she followed the ACT Pioneers Cemetery track. Admittedly, a tourist path through nine cemeteries sounds a bit grim, but as Lucy found out, it also tells us a lot about our relationship with life and death. The idea of walking through cemeteries might sound a bit macabre. They're the cities of the dead, a place often associated with grief and lost lives. But when I started looking into the Pioneer's Cemetery track, it dawned on me that the opposite is true as well. They are the places where we honour and remember the dead, but also provide space for the living, human and otherwise. On this journey, I uncovered the celebration of life as much as the mourning of its loss. Pioneer's Cemetery Track covers nine sites from the north of the ACT down to the territory's south more than 50 kilometres away. From churchyards to rural plots, single grey stones to sprawling urban lawn cemeteries, they are the symbols that reflect our society, past, present and future. The track starts with a site that has no burial grounds, but still a long history with death. The All Saints Church, close to Canberra Centre, is an imposing building of sun-bleached sandstone and stained glass. Slow, choral music presses against the glass, echoing onto the streets outside. The church was built from the remains of the mortuary station at Rookwood Cemetery in Sydney. The station had fallen into disrepair, so All Saints applied to demolish it. Stone by stone, the building was taken apart, put on a train to Canberra, and stone by stone was rebuilt. It's now a beautifully restored relic of the past, a monument to preservation. This idea, that we have a duty to preserve our past, is one that the track will alternately reinforce and challenge. As I wandered through the different cemeteries, the definition of preservation varied, a lot. There was the single grave of General Sir William Bridges at the Royal Military College in Duntroon. He was the first Australian general killed in Turkey during the Gallipoli landings. His burial site is the only consecrated grave on Defence Force property in Australia. It's perfectly preserved, surrounded by a fence and elevated onto decades-old stone masonry. Bridges' place in Australia's history involves overseeing a military disaster, and he's chosen for monumental preservation, unlike most. At another stop, 
I see headstones dating back to the early 1900s, where the inscription is so faded it can't be read. Other plots are overgrown, bare of flowers and mementos. An acknowledgement of a person's life exists, but it's also apparent those who buried them have moved on and no longer visit. Perhaps they've also left this world. And it starts to sink in that one day, we might well be forgotten. This is reinforced at the next stop, just across the ACT border in Queenbeyan at the Riverside Cemetery. Like most, the site is peaceful, the gentle sound of the river running a short distance away. Here, there is no attempt to resurrect headstones that are crumbling, fallen over, and decaying. There's a lack of symmetry and order at Riverside, but the signs of age seem appropriate. It's a place that conveys the notion of final rest. Whatever happens to the graves, happens. It's a sign of acceptance and letting go. The further I go on this journey, the more I see of Australian history reflected in the lives of those who have gone before us. In the far south of the ACT is the grave of Onyong, an indigenous man who lived in a rural area beyond Canberra's suburbs. His burial site is on a hill named after him, although the exact location of his resting place is not known. Onyong was respected by the local colonists, but that didn't prevent his murder, shot by a settler in a dispute about cattle. It's a jarring moment on this journey. The track honours early Europeans as pioneers. It's a romantic image of rugged settlement. The reality is part of this track reflects the history we're still wrestling with as a nation. The dispossession of traditional land and the casualties of First Nations people. Wandering through cemeteries is like being in a time capsule. The stories of the dead reflect the Australia we have today. The city's largest cemetery in Woden is the most Canberra of all shaped like a roundabout. Avenues, lined by trees planted almost a hundred years ago, wrap around lawns with row upon row of headstones. It represents the history of Australia's immigration and religious diversity. There are sections for Catholics, Anglicans, Muslims, Jews, Presbyterians, Methodists, Lutherans, and those with no faith at all. Poignantly, there's a baby's rose garden to commemorate the passing of lives lost way too soon. As I stroll through the different sections, the honouring of our dearly departed reflects the culture of our society. Some graves have extravagant memorials, large marble slabs that sprawl metres wide. Others are adorned with religious symbols, a crucifix, a towering statue of a god, a mini temple. But the majority are simple headstones, poking their head above the manicured lawns. There's also a resting place for those who choose to be cremated. And... Nesting all throughout the cemetery are the sounds of cockatoos, ravens, and magpies. They drink from flower pots and forage in the lawn cemetery. This place of death also provides the conditions for life. The Pioneer Cemetery track ends at Canberra's centrepiece, Lake Burley Griffin. It's an appropriate finale, a resting place if you like, surrounded by national monuments, set against the backdrop of a city in the Brindabella Ranges in the distance. After an exhausting seven hour journey, I've learnt so much about the way we remember the dead and our changing culture. There are struggles of past generations, from the traditional owners to those who displace them. Some are given monumental, preserved graves, and some are left to crumble to nothing. On the track, our priorities are stark. 
from the marble slabs to the lawn cemeteries to the cremation gardens, no matter the style of grave, these cemeteries provide spaces for new life to thrive. Eventually, people will stop visiting our grave, but it's reassuring to know that cemeteries are as much for the living as for the dead, and I think that's how they should be. That was our reporter, Lucy Monaghan. When the world went into lockdown last year, many people turned to animals to help them deal with the boredom and loneliness. A year on, animal shelters and dog pounds say they're inundated with what they call pandemic puppies. Many people thought having a pet was a good idea, now not so much. But pets need a bit of lovin' as well, which is where Barkfest came in. It's a festival for puppies, a bit like the big day out for dogs. Our reporter, Lindsay Turnbull, went along with Casper, her 15-year-old Maltese. She found an event for dogs that are much loved and, at times, indulged. But Barkfest had an equally important message about the way we treat dogs. Here's Lindsay. It says a lot about the status of dogs in our world, that a one-day festival exists purely for humans' best friend. And Barkfest 2.0 is no ordinary dog show. The festival's main parade of stalls is a traffic jam of dogs, big and small, as owners wander among the attractions. There's a pop-up doggy diner that serves a fish meal called Icy Food and Eat It, and fancy puppy milk drinks like Bow Wow Baileys and Cream. Over at the puppy Picasso stall, dogs can paint a masterpiece by licking peanut butter off a canvas. There are clothing stalls with the latest fashion and accessories. There are grooming stalls, and there's even a dog whispering stand. And then there's the glitz and glamour, as celebrity dogs strut their stuff on the paparazzi red carpet. It's the parade of rescue dogs walking down the runway with fabulous drag queens. This is about community involvement, and that's why we have the drag queens and things like that. Dogs don't yeah. So we don't, we don't, like we want to incorporate everyone in our events as well. So we just want to kind of promote a community vibe with dogs, with humans, with all of that stuff. Because we just, if we were like dogs, we'd all be getting along. That's Tatum Brown, the founder of the social dog company and driving force behind Barkfest 2.0. It's a charity event that supports dogs who haven't been as loved as the many who've turned up to the festival. Tatum is talking from experience after buying her first dog, Winston the Dash Hound, from a classified ad website. And he came to me like with a bag of bones, as a bag of bones, like starved to death to make him look like a miniature. He had a urine retract infection, he'd been stepped on so his hips were out of place. Um, he had, like, he was traumatised. Tatum set up Barkfest to raise money for organisations that support the underdog, the surrendered pet in need of a loving home. This year's festival was supporting the Rainbow Paws program. It's a charity that financially helps people to provide for their companion dogs. But money alone is not the only reason pets are abandoned or taken to a pound. The RSPCA says it rehomed more than 11,000 dogs in Australia last year. That's 11,000 dogs who were given up. And that's the bittersweet sentiment for dog owners like me. We love our pets and hate to see others who, for various reasons, no longer have or want that relationship. They just need like loving homes. It's not their fault that they kind of were brought into this world or they were treated one way or their family couldn't keep them. So um, yeah, they deserve a loving home. At pounds and shelters, older dogs are the most commonly surrendered. They are more likely to be put down if they stay in a pound longer than a month without being adopted. 
Tatum was volunteering at a pet shelter when she met her current dog, Chloe the Maltese, who was 10. Chloe was about to suffer the same fate. On a Wednesday, they shut the pound down to euthanize a lot of the dogs, and because of her age, um, and she was very skittish in the pound, she'd been there a month, and it was her day to be put down the next day. So I took her, and I said, you're not putting her down, and I took her. Um, so I've had her for about four years. Um, easiest dog I've ever owned. This hits home for me since my dog Casper is a 15-year-old Maltese as well. I've had him since he was a puppy, and he's my best friend. Like many pet owners, I cherish my dog's loyalty and companionship. But not everyone does. Yeah, so you do get a lot of older dogs and also certain types of breed dogs. People get them, they think they're cool, they're, you know, staffies and cooties and things like that, you know. And then they, they call to them and then they say the dog bit my daughter. And it's like, well, look at how you raise the dog. So it's not about a breed of a dog, I don't think. Um, it's about the humans. <laughs> Barkfest 2.0 is also supporting the Greyhound Connections charity. It finds forever homes for retired and rescued greyhounds. There's a perception that the breed is only for racing and hunting, and they pass their use-by date when they are no longer profitable. I met Mel, the adoption and foster coordinator for Greyhound Connections. She adopted her greyhound Lexi from the charity. It was another story of a dog about to be put down, because the owners no longer wanted her. Mel wishes people would not think of dogs as a commodity that can be discarded. She says if that's the attitude, then maybe they should rethink the idea of getting a dog in the first place. <laughs> Abandoning pets was one strong message from Barkfest. The other was about pet adoption. Both Mel and Tatum want people to think about buying one of the thousands of dogs living in pounds and shelters. They are dogs that want to love and be loved. Tatum says she started Barkfest as a fun event to bring dog lovers together, to unite a community. But the festival is so much more than that. Hiding under the veneer of dressed up dogs prancing down a runway is the connection between human and animal. People are genuinely besotted with their dog. For some, it's almost a codependent relationship. Tatum says it's that alluring connection that might just convince people to support the rescue and adoption of dogs. I want people to know that um, one way or another, you can do your part with raising awareness for pet adoption. So whether it's attending an event and bringing your own dog down, whether it's supporting small businesses, um, that also support rescue organisations, um, you know, even if it's just liking and sharing a post. That was Tatum Brown, the organiser of Barkfest. Lindsay Turnbull was the reporter. And that ends our program by the University of Canberra. If you want to see more of the best student journalism in Australia, go to our website, junctionjournalism.com. And don't forget, a new episode of Making a Difference is produced every month. You can subscribe on your favourite podcast app. I'm Andrew Ford. Thanks for listening. Music